It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello and welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Charles Green, one of the co-authors of The Trusted Advisor, author of Trust-Based Selling and a couple other books. Actually, the original Trust-Based Selling. I saw there's been another one here been published recently. Oh, no, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Check that out. A consultant to corporations around the world. One of the areas in sales and business that never receives enough attention is trust, or perhaps I should say that it never receives consistent attention. You know, trust is the engine that makes business happen. If a buyer doesn't trust you, they aren't mm -hmm. going to buy from you. It's that simple. And the speed at which trust is developed in a business relationship has a direct correlation to the speed at which your transaction with that buyer will be consummated. So why isn't trust building and the steps that it takes to build trust at the top of every seller's agenda? Well, Charlie's going to help us sort this all out today. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, Andy. So just take a minute, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit what you do. Sure. Uh, Charlie Green. Uh, let's see. I have um, uh, grew up in the Midwest, got undergraduate degree in philosophy, got an MBA from Harvard, spent 20 years in management consulting, and then the last almost 20 focused, as you said, on trust. I um, uh, co-wrote the, the Trusted Advisor back in 2000, and of the three of us co-authors, I'm the one who said, gee, I wonder if this thing has legs, and uh, found a tr Trusted Advisor Associates and have ever since been spending 100% of my time focused on issues of trust and uh, uh, trust-based business relationships, um, largely complex, B2B, often intangible professional services kinds of businesses, mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. in particular, business development and sales. Excellent, excellent. So let's sort of define the word for people. I mean, we think we know what trust is, but I mean, in the context of a business relationship, what is trust? Well, it's, it turns out it's, it's a very good question. Like you would think uh, the simple definition of the answer, but in fact, it's kind of like, um, remember Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart on the issue of obscenity famously <laughs> right. said, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know what it is. But... It. I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. It's exactly. And, and you're right. We all kind of know it. It's like that. We do know it when we see it. But defining it turns out to be very slippery. Uh, so one of the most useful definitions that I've seen uh, is ignored all the time. You see all kinds of data like trust is up in banking or trust is down in financial services, whatever. Uh, that begs a very important question. Are we talking about trustworthiness or trusting? Because a trusted relationship has to have both parties. One has to take a risk to do trusting, and the other one has to be trusted or trustworthy. So if you're going to talk about trust in business, you have to talk about this sort of asynchronous bilateral relationship. You can't do just one. If, if all you are is say, we're the most trustworthy people around, after a while, your customers or whoever are going to say, gee, that's great. I love all the Boy Scout virtues. But you know what? I notice I'm always the one taking the risks. So you know what? <laughs> I'm not sure I trust you after all. Right. Uh, and that's one of the biggest problems that most businesses have. They think they're, they're very trustworthy, and they may or may not be, but they don't trust their customers. And that's why you see so many legal agreements and, and, you know, why would you trust them? So a challenge for many companies is how do you figure out the idea of trusting your customers? All right. Well, how, how do you go about that? I mean, what's, first of all, what's, what, what's the examples or one or more examples you'd give of companies that don't trust their customers? I mean, it doesn't have to be a specific customer name, company name, but yeah, an example yeah. of, of how that's of, you know, seen. 
Well, let's see. And then we'll come back to trustworthiness, which sure. is interesting, too. But the, the trusting, I mean, the most common example, I think, is just an over, uh, over-reliance on, on legal contracts and an unwillingness to, um, uh, you know, you, you sign employee agreements that say you'll never go work for a competitor for the next two years, which may or may not be enforceable, but it certainly is not trust-creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, intellectual property agreements, we ask people to sign them all the time, vastly overdone. Uh, contractual agreements about um, uh, overuse of lawyers, put it that way. Here's a good rule of thumb. A, a five-page contract with a handshake beats the hell out of a 25-page contract without one. You, you just can't um, uh, legislate uh, trust. So I would say, you know, get comfortable with sharing more information. Get comfortable with putting yourself in a situation of exposure because here's the way trust works. If I trust you, you trust me. The best way to make somebody else trustworthy is to trust them in the first place. So we need to find opportunities to do that. Much of that's just on an interpersonal basis. Right. You you share things with people. That you're candid with people in a way that's disarming or unexpected and not planned, but you know, part of who you are. So uh, companies that that rely, as you said, on some of these lengthy contracts, that, and they give you the line, well, you know, we're just going to put this in the drawer, right? I mean, we only sure. do this because, hey, we're just checking the box. Right, and the lawyers make us blah, blah, blah. The lawyers make us blah, blah, blah. All BS. Right. Well, to a great extent, yes. Uh, it's a cop-out, put it that way. Um, the truth is you can always make an exception. You can document the exception. And, and people hide behind this stuff quite a bit. That's on the legal process side. The truth is um, most trust is personal. Like if I say I trust Andy Paul, that's a meaningful statement with loads of richness. If I say I trust Amazon... That doesn't really mean very much. Like, uh, if, if they mess up on two shipments, I don't trust Amazon anymore. What good was that? Uh, I certainly don't trust Amazon to babysit my granddaughter. Uh, you know, so corporations... <laughs> they can send the drone to do that. Yeah, they can send the drone, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so most trust is really personal. So the challenge of creating your customers ends up being, properly, much more about how do individual salespeople or business developers or, or customer relationship managers, how do they trust their individual customers? Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with interpersonal dynamics and emotional intelligence and things like that. You know, being willing to share your own vulnerability, being courageous enough to comment on their vulnerability, things like that. So why isn't this more front and center? You know, I've done a scan of blogs, business blogs over the last week just in right. preparation for this talk. Oh, I'm flattered. I don't, th- don't think I saw trust mentioned <laughs> hardly at all. Yeah. It's, so, um, so why isn't this more front and center? I mean, it seems like it sort of comes in waves, right? Oh, yeah, we sort of think about it for a little bit, and then it just disappears. Yeah, I think you're right. It does come in waves. And I think there was maybe a couple of years ago, it sort of got a lot of attention. And now you may be right. You're not hearing about it as much. I think the fundamental reason is, um, uh, first of all, again, most of it really is personal. You, you hear a lot of blathering about corporate trustworthiness, it really there's not that much to it. You can't you can't legislate it. If you mm-hmm. have a powerful, committed leader, then uh, trust is something that leading by example is enormous with. People who actually walk the talk have more impact in the area of trust than in almost anything else. But short of that, well, again, that's that's personal. Trust is personal. And the big reason you don't see more of it is it's really simple. It's fear. It's personal fear. If we walk around with a notion in our head of business that the customer is the enemy then guess what? You're not going to trust your customer, and your customer is not going to trust you. 
And unfortunately, that's the kind of concept that has been encouraged in business for the last three or four decades. I blame the business schools and the corporate strategists to a great extent for this because the whole metaphor of strategy is zero-sum competition, military, mm-hmm. you know, penetration, beat the enemy, market share. Um, you know, how do I how do I extract a dollar from your wallet to, into mine? It's very anti-collaborative. It's a view of business as competition. And uh, it's not exactly the mother's milk of, of great customer relationships. Yeah, so, I mean, you think about it. I mean, you hear this all the time. Is gosh, if we don't, if we give the customer an inch, they're going to take a foot, right? Yeah, exactly. We just well, don't trust them. Yeah, exactly. And if that's your attitude, guess what? They're not going to trust you right back. And it just it just feeds on itself. No matter if you expect good or ill of somebody, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> I love that so. Yeah, trust isn't really a soft concept. I mean, to me, it's very tangible, right? I mean, because it's, it's at the heart of commerce. I mean, if if the trust isn't there, things don't happen. Yeah, so, so that's not a that's not a trivial statement either. If you think about the the best work that's been done on on profitability, uh, I think the work on customer retention and loyalty done by Harvard Business School and Bain and Fred Reichelt and and all that stuff that ended up in the Net Promoter Score that is more powerful than the reigning paradigm of market share that he who is one or two in their market and low cost producer drives i think loyal customers have a larger economic impact even than being the low cost producer and there have been some studies to that effect and yet it doesn't get nearly as much play yeah well you think about it i mean i think that number one or two in the market all came from ge and jack welsh i think a lot of it well and jack and they got it in turn from bcg and um uh and mike porter right so if you're a leader in a mid-sized or small company, smaller right. enterprise. First of all, how do you recognize if you have a trust problem? Well, I, good question. I don't know there's anyone, you know, this is an area where metrics are overrated too. I, I would say if you, if you know it in your bones, then you know it. You know you have a trust problem. And if you think you don't have a trust problem, you watch out. <laughs> Go ask somebody else. Um, I, I think the, the people that don't have a trust problem are the ones who really have thought about it, are very open to it, and say, you know, we really don't because we recognize it all the time. We strive uh, to get to get great at it. Everybody could get better on trust. This is not an ISO nine thousand upper limit type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can all get infinitely better at, at trusting relationships. So, is the key then that companies should make sure that, regardless of their size, is that they should be doing regular customer surveys, you know, at least annually. Let's well, say, or goes, looking at their retention and re-upping you know, of customers in terms of, you know, how often customers are renewing their contracts or whatever. Yeah, these are these are just indicators, and and the, if you have to look at a dashboard to figure this out, um, you know, you're not looking in the right place. Uh, I, I, there's sort of four principles that I talk about at the corporate level, or corporate culture level, or leadership level. And if you're constantly thinking about them, you'll be noticing the signals. And very quickly, those are a default to transparency. In other words, you're willing to share everything all the time unless it's illegal or hurtful. A long-term perspective, meaning you're focusing on the relationship, not the transaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're focusing on the medium to long-term, not the short-term. An instinct towards collaboration, meaning you're on the same side of the table as your customer. And a notion of client focus as being about the client and not about your bottom line. Those four attitudes and perspective you can find in any interaction, 
You know, am I behaving in a sharing way about information? Am I behaving like these these guys are on my team? Am I behaving like this is not the only sale? This is just number sixty three of five hundred and forty three sales. Uh, you know, and am I am I in it for their good? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you don't find those characteristics showing up in your interactions, then I guarantee you'll find it downstream in some other indicator like market share or uh, or repeat business and so forth. But those are those are lagging indicators, really. So what do you do about it? I, well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, you can't make a greater trust based culture through some of the traditional um, uh, business ways. You can't incent people to be selfless, for example. Um, it's it's an oxymoron. And uh, so incentives and, and metrics are overrated. Those are great for doing other things. I think you really have to do two things to increase trust. One, you really have to get used to the idea of managing by principles and values which is very scalable, by the way. The more complicated something is, the better it's managed by, by values and principles. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you have to be very conscious of uh, leaders' behavior. There, there's some areas in business where if the leader doesn't walk the talk, um, it's not that big a deal. you know. But if it's in this area, if somebody's saying, you need to do this to be trusted and trustworthy, and they don't do it, that's a hypocrite right away. We just you know completely discount them. So values... And leaders walk in the talk. Those are the two ways in which it really works. So when you're dealing with, with people that you know, are business leaders, let's say an entrepreneur that you know, could be young, but could also be somebody that's a little bit older, a little more established in life, they've got you know, bad patterns of behavior that affect the trust that they create with their customers. Yeah. How do you counsel them to, to change? Well, um, I think you most people are educable. It's funny, just last night I was watching an episode of um, Undercover Boss, and they had a head of branding something from um, Boston Market. And she went in and doing the undercover thing. And there was some uh, store employee who, who said, I hate customers. They're the worst part of the day. You know, I like the people here, but the customers make everything awful. <laughs> and she agonized over what to do. And finally decided maybe they should fire the guy. I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. Uh, but most people are not that, you know, wacko. They, they just haven't quite thought about Again, it comes back to personal fear. In in every, we're all human beings. We all walk around, you know, semi fearful of everything around us, and uh, we we don't want to have our feelings hurt. We don't want to look stupid. We want to get out ahead, not behind. You know, we want to be perceived well. We want to be liked. All those things. Mm-hmm. Well, trust requires risk taking, and we're taught everywhere in business risk is to be mitigated. The only good risk is a dead risk. Well, that's not true in trust. If you want to trust somebody, you need to take a risk. That's built into the definition. And uh, so I think it's it's fearful, you know, give the customers information. Why would I do that? Not close the deal on the call. Why would I do that? You know, play for the long haul, not the short one. What if they take advantage of me? These are all reactions that are fear based and short term based. So I think we talk with people about those. You know, would you would you like to do more business with this person? Yeah. Well, maybe if you didn't stop pressing on the need to close this deal in the next week at this price, you might have a better relationship. Do you think? Well, but they still might take advantage of me. Well, you you engage in that conversation and play it out with them. I think you you talk about those four principles that I mentioned. Yeah, and I think for people to understand too is that has that's really almost it's just the flip side of the coin of being trustworthy, as you talked about before. It's, it's yeah. So, you know. If, you can create trust, but you're also giving this image of yourself that you're not trustworthy when you engage in those behaviors. And even though you may think you are in That's your soul right. and you, you perceive yourself to be, is the perception of you as by others is that you're not. 
That's exactly right. And um, you, know, you, me- you mentioned the trustworthy part of it there. If we could take a second on that, because that sure. is half of it. Uh, it's actually easier to talk about trustworthiness than it is trusting. There's a thing that we developed in the book, The Trusted Advisor, called the trust equation, which is four factors that go into an equation that we call trustworthiness. And very simply, it's C plus R plus I over S, which stands for credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, all divided by self-orientation. Credibility is like, can I believe what he tells me? Mm-hmm. Reliability is, can I depend on him doing what he said he would do? Intimacy is, do I feel okay sharing this information with them? Is it too risky? And in the denominator, self-orientation is, who's he focused on? Not only just who is he in it for, but who is he paying attention to? Who is he thinking about? Is he comfortable and secure enough to be focused on me and paying attention to me? Or is he neurotically, selfishly self-obsessed to the point that everything is about him? And if you look at those four factors and the way they played out, we actually created an online self-diagnostic that 70,000 people have now taken. And there's some really cool findings that come out of it. Like, for example, let me let me test you on this one, Andy. Who's more trustworthy, men or women? What do you think? <laughs> Put you on the spot here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is real time, folks. Women, women. Well, you are correct. And, and so are most people whom I ask that question. They say, well, probably women. Absolutely correct. By a statistically significant amount, women are more trustworthy than men by that definition. Uh, and then it turns out also, <clears throat> in some ways, the most important finding is that of those four factors, two of them have greater outsized importance. I mean, quite statistically, literally, drivers, higher regression coefficients mm-hmm. in that equation. And those are intimacy and self-orientation, the two soft factors. Right. So back to your point about this isn't really soft stuff, it is true that high trustworthiness is positively correlated with repeat business customer retention. I mean, there's no better driver of do you want to keep doing business with people than if you trust them. And that trustworthiness in turn is driven primarily by the so-called soft factors of intimacy and low self-orientation. So it is directly connected, you know, from the heart to the bottom line. There is a connection. Trust pays. Although, ironically, if you try to be trustworthy in order to make more money, it won't work. Well, no, because then you're not really being exactly. authentic, right? So and people can exactly see that. Exactly right. And people can see that. You're absolutely right. You come right. across as inauthentic and they don't trust you. So, exactly. oh, good. We're going to take a short break here. But before we do, I'm going to ask you a question because this is a question I've asked each of my guests and a little hypothetical scenario for you. Okay. So you've just been hired as a new sales manager at a company whose sales have sort of stalled out. Right. And... Upper management's really got a highly developed sense of urgency to turn things around quickly. So what are the two things you would do in your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? You think about that, and we'll come back after the break and get your answer. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Hi, I'm back. I'm with Charlie Green today, author of The Trusted Advisor and Trust-Based Selling. 
Charlie, we're going to talk about the hypothetical scenario I posed right before the break. New sales manager, company's sales are sort of stalled out and need to be turned around. What two things would you do in the first week that could have the biggest impact? <laughs> I certainly would go talk to you know the, the X key customers, top 10 customers, something like that, or as many as I can get to in a week. That'd be number one. Mm-hmm. And a close number two would be I would talk to some chunk of or as many as I could get to of the salespeople. And I would ask them mainly, what are you afraid of? You know, what's your, what's your biggest fear? And, and the reason for those two is the fastest way to make an impact and the richer, deeper way is, is with repeat business, not new client, new customer business. It's right. repeat business. And, and the biggest barrier I find to successful salespeople, I won't say the biggest, but in my purview, it's fear. And if people can get rid of their fears and and behave from a, a larger sense of, um, I'm going to sound wishy-washy, Buddhist uh, mantra type stuff here, but from a sense of fullness and plenitude, right? Uh, it loosens up and makes them better salespeople. And what are they afraid of? Well, uh, looking bad. Uh, making not, a mistake. Making a mistake, saying something stupid, being called out, being laughed at, not making the target, no matter what the target is, just not making it, uh, underperforming other people. Uh, falling in the bottom half, all that stuff, which is pretty much ego, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about trust specifically in the context of sales. And, yes. Yeah. In my mind, developing trust has to be a deliberate part of a selling strategy. I mean, how, how do you how do you engage and communicate with a prospect in a way that starts that that process? Well, it's um, it's a great question, and uh, it's at the heart of trust based selling, which is ultimately kind of paradoxical. And the paradox is this. If you're willing to walk away from the sale and and give up on making that sale in return for doing something to make that customer better, then paradoxically, you will end up selling more. (laughs) Your your willingness to forego the initial transaction actually increases the level of trust that the customer has in you. And it will come back because, as we said in the first half, people return good for good and bad for bad. If I behave in a trustworthy way towards you, it will impress you and you will be inclined because we re- behave as reciprocating people to return the favor. So if I walk into, I mean, this happens all the time in our, in our business, that you, you walk into a situation and, and the, the customer is prepared for some hard negotiation, and instead you say, you know, what's the right thing to do here? looks like this is the right thing, look, that's the right thing. Who should you be talking to? You should definitely be talking to us. If you haven't already, you should also talk to so-and-so and so-and-so, name a few competitors. Um, and if this is, you know, ends up being the right solution, you should really buy from us. If this isn't the right solution, you know, there may be a couple other people you want to look at heavily. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, you behave from the very beginning like your intent is to do the right thing for the customer. And don't fake it. If you're not the right thing for the customer, the sooner you say so, the more trust you create in that customer and the better off you are the next time you deal with them or the better off you are when they talk to other people. Exactly. So... It's, uh, it isn't a set of behaviors, it's a belief system that manifests itself in certain behaviors that says, I am here as a salesperson to help improve the lives of my customers. And if I reliably do that, I'll get more than my share of the business. I'm here to provide a service. Yes. And what? in particular, not just to you know, uh, click the door, the, the service is in, the service is out. It's I'm here to do the best job that I can of making that service optimal and, and value-adding for you. Exactly. And as long as salespeople have that orientation that they are providing a service, and as you said, it's to make a decision to the customer, to help them gain the information they need to make a, the right decision for their business, right. which may not be buying the product they're selling. Right. 
but that's okay. It is okay. My colleague David Maester on the, on the Trust Advisor had a great old saying. He said, the problem is never what the client said it was in the first meeting. And uh, I think he's more right than wrong that uh, yeah. if, if they could spec something, I mean, this is not true in the area of pure product sales, but anything with a service attached to it, which is pretty much everything these days, uh, they don't know exactly. The real value that you provide, certainly in B2B sales, is is narrowing in and, and nailing down the, the problem that is to be solved. What exactly is the issue that needs to be fixed here? And there, once you get that, then the value that you're providing becomes very evident. And here's where reciprocity comes back. Why would you give the job to anybody other than the one that helped you refine the problem? It's natural. Wow, thanks. That's exactly what we need. Do you do that? Yeah, we do do that. Good. You got the deal. That's how it works. Right. And this is where the intimacy comes in. Because yes, exactly. what happens is that, as you said, you never get the real objective or the real problem that they're trying to objective they're trying to achieve or the problem they're trying to solve on the first call. That's partly because they don't know it. That's because why they're talking. A, to they don't know it. B, maybe they don't trust you enough to really tell you exactly what it is. Right. That's true too. And so, you know, that intimacy really comes to bear. I, mean, I remember a, a deal I was working on years and years ago that was a quite a large deal, and remember we had to submit a proposal and had like a two hundred line item compliance matrix that we had to fill out. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, well, all of these aren't equally important, right? I mean, why right. are we going through this exercise? We've just spent four months with this this prospect. And it's clear that we hadn't really uncovered that that one thing, right? Ah, yep. But we had the relationship where, you know, I could call the CEO of the company and right. find out that throughout those 200 line items, there was one thing that if you did really well, that was going to justify the, the entire expense and the entire investment they were going to make. Exactly. And it was millions of dollars. Yeah. And so and that, having found that out, we reoriented our proposal all around that one thing. Exactly. And we won. Now, anybody listening to this would say, well, you know, Andy, that was lucky because you had a relationship going in and therefore you could go around the RFP process. What if you don't? Well, let me answer that one. Well, no, we started cold just like everybody else in the deal. We oh, just good. happened to develop the relationship. Perfect. Then, then that's great. Um, I completely concur with that. Uh, it reminds me something that we recently did, our biggest sale recently. We were up against two much bigger, better-known companies. Uh, it was a two-step process, a long RFP followed by a half-hour Skype call. And uh, we were in second place after the RFP, we found out later. We won on the Skype call because both the other companies chose to spend their first 10 minutes out of 30 rehashing their qualifications. And as the client said later, that's what got you into the 30 minutes. <laughs> Where I knew that, right? <laughs> why, yeah. Why are you wasting one third of your time? And we, of course, did not do that. We, we had a hyperlinked first page on the PowerPoint that said, we think there are five key things. We only have 29 minutes with you now. Which one do you want to focus on? And they mm -hmm. said, four. Click on number four. We had a great discussion. And halfway through the discussion, as it turns out, they made up their mind. These are the kind of people we want to work with because they're focused on us, not on themselves. Exactly. Let's jump into another little bit area here that you and I have talked about before, which is how trust accelerates the pace of business. Oh, yes. Love it. Okay. So there's a great book that's been written called The Speed of Trust by Stephen yes, Covey Jr. That's right. But as you and I had sort of looked at some of this in the past, we thought, well, his premise is that trust facilitates speed in business. Mm -hmm. But we've actually thought, well, geez, based on what we've seen, that maybe actually speed facilitates trust. Absolutely. Uh, and you, you in some ways, have, have delved more deeply into this. But I also have noticed that uh, uh, the faster you return a call uh, or an email or something, 
uh, the greater the delight factor or the surprise factor or the wow factor. Uh, when you're successful in returning a call within, say, 60 seconds, you catch people still in the thought of uh, whatever they were when they had the phone, when they hung up the phone on the voicemail or when they had just typed on the keyboard. They haven't gone off to think about something else. They haven't even considered another vendor. And uh, the responsiveness blows them away, and they're still in a mindset to talk about it. So um, I, I get maybe one of those every other week or so because I try and engineer a lot of my uh, um, uh, availability. I, I, you know, I have to go to meetings. I have to give presentations. Mm -hmm. But when I'm around, I am not one of these people that says, oh, save your email up until 8 p.m. Right. Uh, I actually believe in, in hitting it right away. I watch when things come in, and occasionally that stuff happens, and it's, it's delightful for people. Yeah, and that's that is one element. They're saying, look, they're making a judgment based about what it's going to be like to deal with you, based even on that that first interaction, responding right. to the email quickly. And it isn't if you're presumed in that also, if you actually have something to say, you don't need to wait and pull together a bunch of canned materials. Like here I am. What do you want to do? Right. Let's talk. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, good. Well, I want to jump into the last part of the show then, as I have some rapid fire questions to give you. You can uh -oh. give me, uh oh, he says, you can give me one word answers <laughs> okay. or you can elaborate as you wish. Okay. So, first question What's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Uh, candor, transparency, admitting the truth. Like, if you don't know something, say, you know what? I don't know that. Uh, who's going to doubt you on that one? Yeah, no, absolutely, right? Yeah. So, name the one tool. Well, I should go back to that because I, I maybe I've told the story on the podcast before, but yeah, I, I tell the story about my um, my interview for my first job. Mm. So it's going to be hired with Burroughs or hope to have been hired by Burroughs back in the day when Burroughs before his unit. I remember. Yeah. And uh, I go in for the interview. I'm in the lobby and somebody comes, opens the door. I guess it was the guy I'm supposed to interview with. He sticks out his hand, says his name, Ray. That's it. I get one word follow him into a conference room. And this was a job selling mini computers and it's entry level right. jobs. So I didn't know anything about mini computers, but they were looking for people that could train to do that. And you'll be selling mini computers to small business. So business to business accounting type applications. So the first question Ray asks me is an accounting question. Right. <laughs> now I was completely unprepared for it to be an accounting question. I'd taken accounting in college and actually done fairly well in the class. Right. But I just blanked. Sure. And so the first thought that goes to my mind is, oh, my God, I've, I've blown it. I've blown it, right. And, yeah, I think, and it's getting to be, you know, kind of obvious that I don't know the answer. So I said, look, I, if you, yeah, I know the answer to this question. I took accounting. You've seen my transcript, but I just can't recall what the answer is right now. So yeah. if I could call you tomorrow with the answer, yeah. um, you know, we'll get it. But I just can't come up with it right now. And I don't want to try to tell yeah. something that's not right. Well, he closes his portfolio, his notebook, and stands up without saying a word and leaves the room. <laughs> yep. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I've blown my I first doing? interview. What am I going to tell my parents? Right. <laughs> first, like, what am I going to tell my mom and dad? I've blown my first interview. And about five minutes later, another guy walks in, and he introduces himself. says, hey, I'm Brian. I run this whole office. And Ray tells me he wants to hire you. And that no was my kidding. interview. No kidding. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I had a somewhat similar thing in a, in a sales call early on with my boss. The, the client asked us point blank, what experience do you have doing marketing studies for sandpaper, which was the issue. <laughs> I said, well, 
that's a pretty narrow vertical market. I sort of had a feeling absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking, how do I scramble around this one? And my boss answered the question very simply. He said, none that I can think of. What else you want to talk about? <laughs> and of course, oh, okay, got it. The guy's Perfect. a straight yeah. talker. Absolutely. All right. So we have one question out of the way. <laughs> Next one. So name one tool you use for managing your own sales that you can't live without. Uh, I use a very simple CRM tool called Base. Okay. It's all I need, um, and it's I've come to really rely on it. It's extremely valuable. Excellent. Who's your sales role model? Oh, wow. Let's see. My sales role model. Um, they're... Uh, well, you know, uh, the, I can't point to one. Uh, part uh, Neil Rackham, mm -hmm. part Zig Ziglar, mm -hmm. uh, going way back, uh, and and part, um, uh, talk about blanking on names, you know, the original Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and just very simply because both of them are, both of those two are about the customer. Uh, and they both believe that if you do right by your customer, your customer will do right by you, which I have found to be profoundly true. What's the one book that every salesperson should read? Well, that's interesting. Uh, modesty forbids me from recommending my own, but it's really a pretty good book. <laughs> it I'll, is. I'll let it you is. say that. It is a good book. Um, there's one that's out of print that's worth looking for called You're Working Too Hard to Make the Sale by Bill Brooks and Tom Travisano. Uh, they've looked at 4,000 different sales transactions of medium complexity and distilled it down to several findings, one of which is the best sales aphorism I've ever seen, which is that people buy what they need from people who understand what they want. In other words, the connection is made mm -hmm. on a deep emotional basis, and that drives the decision to do the mundane transactional purchasing. And there's a lot packed into that. That's that's a great book. Spin selling is is a is a classic, uh, much more available one. I think that's required reading too. Oh, I love that. They buy what they need from people who know what they want. I mean, that's that's uh, yeah, that's that's funny. I I have an expression very similar to that that, that I use that that uh, reflects that same thing. Which which is well, it's very similar. It's, yeah, people buy what they need, but they. I forget. I forget. I wrote it down somewhere. I was going to use well, it for a blog post. But basically, yeah. they they tell you what they want, right? But at the yeah. end of it, and it's sort of that to that story I told before about finding that one line item in the two hundred, yeah, two hundred line item thing. They're going to buy what they need ultimately, but they're going to tell you what they want. Yeah, up front. And but the thing is, people sort of always will focus on selling exactly what the customer tells them they want, yes, exactly. as opposed to what they really need. Well, it would notice in that dialogue, anybody who's listening, the, the definitions of needs and wants can be used in different ways. You and I just use them slightly differently, although ultimately I think with the same meaning. But it's worth looking into it and pondering it. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the first sales activity you do every day? Oh, uh, honestly, check my email. Okay. What's the favorite music you have to listen to to sort of prep yourself or psych yourself up for a big meeting or sales call? <laughs> Uh, well, it's not, you know, Chariots of Fire or Rocky or anything like that. <laughs> I actually, uh, to get myself prepped, I listen to um, uh, new agey, uh, indeterminate, spaced out background music to get myself egoless and mm -hmm. mellow and, and uh, centered. I mean, and yeah. And, yeah. And the mantra is my job here is not to sell them something. My job is to improve the relationship and the business situation of this client. 
And I, that's what I say to myself, literally, before I have a sales call. I'm not here to sell. I'm here to help somebody. I love it. A great yeah. lesson for people that are listening. Great lesson. Yeah. Say it again. <laughs> uh, before any sales call, close your eyes. Call it a mantra. Call it a prayer. Call it whatever you want. Call it a, uh, uh, a pre-flight checklist. And say to yourself, my job here is not to make a sale, my, because that's all about me. My job here is to help a client or a customer improve their business, thereby improving our relationship. And if I do that consistently over time, the sales will roll in, which they will. Yeah, in my latest book, Amp Up Your Sales, I have a quote from an interview with Jeff Bezos that he gave to the yeah. Harvard Business Review. And he said, we don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help customers make purchase decisions. Beautiful. That's well said. Yeah, to me that encapsulates it just as you did extremely well. Yeah, yeah. So let's see, last question for you then. Okay. The one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople is? Mm, well, in the work that I do, um, yeah, I guess honestly, in the workshops that I do with salespeople, uh, it's somewhere near the second half of the session, people get honest and they'll say, well, you know, how do I know they're not going to screw me over? How do I know I'm not going to look foolish? How do I know I'm not going to, you know, lose the sale? And, and the answer is you don't, you know, if, in fact, the source of your problems is trying to control other people like mm -hmm. customers. And this is one thing I've learned throughout my life, a couple divorces, raising teenage kids, an interracial marriage, and a few other things. Nobody cares what I think. And especially, nobody does what I tell them to do. <laughs> it's just profoundly true. And it's right. absolutely true with the customers. People don't do what you tell them to do. Uh, let's quote another famous sales effort. And people don't care what you know until they know yeah, that you care. care. Right. And detachment from the outcome sounds very Buddhist, but it's very true, is, is a powerful thing. If they recognize, I'm not here to make the sale, I'm here to help them, guess what? The, the defenses go down, people relax, they listen to your advice because they know you're not trying to con them into something. And so the ultimate paradox comes back. If you're willing to help people, they become more willing to buy from you. It's when we subscribe to books and blogs and tips and tricks about how do I get them to close the sale and do this, that, and the other, that the customers back off. One of the fascinating pieces of research in Neil Rackham's Spin Selling is there's a little piece in there where he talks about training some people in closing techniques. And the more they train them, the worse they got. Yep. And that's because, you know, the, the, if you try and get too tight about the mechanisms and processes for closing people, it's just, it's just controlling them. And well, and also if you get yourself in a business-to-business -business sales or if, and you're outside of, you know, selling cars or insurance, right. is people don't make their decisions in front of you. Well, they're not about they're not about to tell you, that <laughs> and they so do. right that That's they right. do right, That's and especially right. now when you're talking about you know so much of what the press talks about the press, but the you know in the sales world people talk about hey there's you know now five buyers or five influencers on in general and in every decision and so on. Right, right. Well, they're, not gonna, make, they're not going to make that decision in front of you. Well, so, I think actually they do, but they're not going to show well, it. Well, that's they're what I'm saying. They're not going to show it. They're making the decision that's right. right. Oh, but, they're, exactly. That's right. But they're not. They're not saying sit there and five people and say, "Okay, which one of these people do we want? Do we want to buy from this guy?" That's yeah, in right. Front of you. They're not saying that. Why would you put them on a spot then and force them to articulate something that they want to be private about? You're absolutely right. Well, and then if you do, they're more likely to tell you, "We're just not ready to make that decision." Yes, I need to go think about it. Right. You know, blah blah blah. Which is, and then it, then it goes worse because, like in the in the car business, they say, "Well, there's no such thing as a be back." If they walk out the door, saying, "We'll exactly. be back," they won't be. So let's go you get know, the manager. 
Yeah, you uh, no. <laughs> and I, I'm convinced, honestly, I think that the insurance people and, and the used car people uh, bring it on themselves. I do not think that those are businesses that couldn't be vastly improved by greater trust. I think they bring the, uh, the consequences on themselves. Oh, absolutely. We all do, right? We, we all sorry, do. Yeah. We sort of behavior. We, we met the enemy and it is us. Right. We've seen the enemy is us. I've, I use that in presentations from Pogo. Yes. Well, and I think the key thing is that for salespeople and business owners and so on is that, yeah, you can't control the outcomes. Right. So stop trying. All you can do is control what you do. That's exactly right. And if you are generous and offering constantly to help, that melts people. They say, wow, you know, this guy is not in it to get it. He's not in it to get me. He's not in it for my wallet. He actually seems to be kind of in it for me. Wow. I like dealing with somebody like that. I think I'll buy from that person. Yeah. Well, that's certainly evident in your book, Trust Based Selling. People read my books. Same thing. Zero time yes, selling. Amp up your sales. It's, it's all about the customer. You're providing a service. You can control what you do. Everything else is going to be in their hands. So That's right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today, Charlie. It's been great. Oh, my pleasure, Andy, how as can, always. How can people learn more about you? Uh, trustedadvisor.com. One word, T-R-U-S-T-E-D-A-D-V-I-S-O-R.com. Excellent. All right. So remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your business. And subscribing to this podcast on iTunes is an excellent way to do that because you'll make sure that you don't miss any of our conversations with top business experts like our guest today, Charles Green, who share their experience and wisdom about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.